All right, for those of you who aren't aware, we have a kids class at this time that just meets in the back of the large room here. Kids, you're more than welcome to make your way to that at this time. If you'd like, you're also welcome to stick around here in the service as well. Um, And then if you're not aware, we also have a nursery that's offered every week that just meets in the room right off to the corner here. Uh, That's fully staffed, and you're more than welcome to use that. All right, well, I want to invite you to join me this morning in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. Your human body is designed in such a way that every part of it, at least from what I know, uh, needs blood. Every organ, every extremity, and central to that obviously would be your heart, which is pumping and circulating blood all throughout your body, the circulatory system. Well, that blood flows through several blood vessels that carry your blood, to me this is amazing, uh, nearly 100,000 kilometers within your body. To put that in perspective, your blood vessels, if lined up end to end, would circle the globe more than two times. It's absolutely amazing when you think about how God has designed our bodies. Take that image with me, if you would, and just think about the gospel for a moment. The entire world needs the life-giving blood of the gospel. It needs to go everywhere. And central to that, obviously, is Jesus Christ. He is the heart of the gospel. He is the source of life. So how does the life-giving blood of the gospel flow from the heart, so to speak, Jesus Christ himself, out to everywhere that it needs to go? Well, just like with your human body, that happens through vessels. People desperately need what only Jesus can provide Uh, At the end of the last passage, if if you recall, Jesus was being swarmed by a massive crowd of people who all desperately needed what only Jesus Christ could provide. And yet there is no way that he can personally, uh, standing along the seashore there in Galilee, minister to every single one of them. He's standing there in a body. So how is he going to do it? Well, it's quite simple, really. He's going to do it through an endless number of vessels or people that will multiply and extend and carry his work all throughout the world. Today, we are going to look at those vessels. And just like with the human body, most of them are small. Uh, They seem, at times, strikingly insignificant, even minuscule. And what we see Jesus doing is Jesus wisely calls disciples to multiply his work. And we're going to look at generation one of that here today. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, I'll read down through verse 19. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagernes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Uh, 
I want to put before you from this text this morning three reminders about the vessels that Jesus uses in his work. What type of people, what type of vessels does God use, does Jesus use? First of all, here's the first reminder. Jesus calls disciples according to his sovereign will. In other words, Jesus is the one who picks them. He picks the vessels. Jesus is about to choose 12 men uh, in which to pour the next three years of his life. I mean, he is going to give major, major time to these guys. And Mark goes out of his way to make clear that Jesus chose the men that he wanted, the men that he desired. Jesus is the one initiating what transpires here, not the 12. Uh, Look at verse 13, and this will be quite significant in a moment. Verse 13 says, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he what? Desired. And they came to him. Uh, The Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, records the same account but in greater detail. And Luke tells us that Jesus went up into the hills the night before and he spent the entire night in prayer, presumably about who the twelve would be who the twelve would be that he would choose, and then he called the twelve that he desired the next day. Here's Luke's account. Luke says, In these days he he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Really simple thought here. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus called to him those whom he desired. These are the 12 that Jesus wants, and there's absolutely nothing haphazard here. There's nothing careless. There's nothing overlooked in his choosing. Why is that a big deal? Why kind of catch that on the front end of this text? Well, I think you'll see when we take a closer look at the 12. You'll think in your mind, Jesus, why on earth would you have picked these 12 men and put them together to do anything? Seriously, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They're nothing to write home about. And the way that Jesus chose the 12 apostles, I think we could also say has a lot of similarities to how he calls disciples today and he puts them together to accomplish his mission and his purposes. This all starts with us reading about how Jesus chose the 12 that he desired. Jesus calls the disciples according to his sovereign will. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, consider this thought. Whoever it is that you are, shortcomings, weaknesses, and all, I mean, you know who you are. I know who I am. Jesus desires to use you. So that's our first reminder. Second reminder, Jesus calls disciples for an intended purpose. Look at verses 14 and 15. And he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Uh, Jesus called, we, we see in these, these verses that Jesus called the 12 for two primary purposes. Basically, purpose number one was to bring them near. And purpose number two was to send them out. These men were apostles, which is a little bit uh, more specific than the broader idea of a disciple. But the basic paradigm that we see here is the same for every disciple of Jesus Christ, that he, he first calls people near with the desire to send them out. 
Jesus calls disciples near for training. Verse 14 explains that Jesus called the twelve so that they might be with him. Uh, Simple but beautiful words there. He calls disciples near for training so that he can send them out on mission. So for 24-7, for three years, Jesus is going to invest in training the twelve. And they will listen to what he says. They will watch what he does. And this training course, interestingly enough, it's not really assignment-based. Often as you go through school, your teacher gives you this assignment and that assignment. Just complete all these different assignments. And there's certainly an element of that as you read through what's going on with the training of the 12 throughout the Gospels. But this really isn't an an assignment-based training. It's relationship-based. It's intensely relational. Jesus chooses these 12 so that they can come be with him and live with him and dwell with him and speak with him and watch him. It's intensely relational. So Jesus calls disciples near for training and then Jesus sends disciples out on mission. Look at verses 14 and 15 again and let's try to just notice that idea. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him And he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Okay, so Jesus appointed these 12 men to carry on and multiply his work. Jesus is a preacher of the good news of the kingdom. We've been uh, noting that again and again, paragraph after paragraph, that what is it that Jesus keeps going back to? He keeps going back to the preaching of the good news of the kingdom. Repent and believe the gospel. And now he's appointed generation one of gospel preachers, gospel messengers to carry on that work. He's training and equipping the 12 for that same glorious task. We see that Jesus is an equipper and he's a multiplier. And in verse 15, he also gave them the authority to cast out demons. Uh, Again, they're apostles. Uh, I wouldn't understand from Scripture for for that office to still exist today. But here are the 12, and they are apostles. And and with their apostleship, he also gave them the authority to cast out demons, which would have really validated the message that Jesus sent them out to declare. Jesus calls disciples near for training, and he then then sends them out on mission. Uh, You are not an apostle, and neither am I. Uh, We don't have the authority to cast out demons like Jesus gave the the 12 apostles. But you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the paradigm that we see here is the same paradigm today. You must be with Jesus in order to be sent out effectively. There's a sequence here. Come be with me, and then he sends them out. It's been well said that discipleship is relational before it is a task. It is a who before a what. Uh, And I think all of us just do well to think about the fact that you must be an ongoing disciple of Jesus in order to make other disciples. I mean, this is just the paradigm. Come be with me. It's intensely relational. And then I want you to go out and carry on my work. Those who are the most effective for Jesus are often the ones who have spent the most time with Jesus. Relationship is key to effectiveness. Come be with me, Jesus says. Come dwell with me. And then he sends us out. Jesus calls disciples for an intended purpose. And God, too, has called you to to very important tasks. Jesus wants you to spend time with him. 
You may sit here uh, with a burning desire to be used by God. God, I want my life to account for you. I want to be used by you. I, I want you to do great things through me. And that's wonderful. But are you being with him, to use the language of this text? Jesus said, come be with me. Are you dwelling with him in his word? Jesus invited these men to come be with him and, and hear everything that he was saying. And that's what he wants of you. He's spoken and he, he's given us his words and the invitation is come be with me. Are you dwelling with Jesus in his words? Don't minimize that. I mean, this is foundational for followers of Jesus Christ. And he also wants you to go out and to continue his work. And so maybe that's a follow-up question. Is the work of Jesus Christ extending out through you? Okay, my, my job is to be and dwell with Jesus in his word and spend time with him and his people and his other disciples. But then he wants to use me. He wants me to go out and he wants me to be a herald of the good news. He wants me to make other disciples. As you seek to do that, to disciple others, I think Jesus' methods here should instruct all of us. You should spend significant quality time with others. Uh, striving to equip them and help be a multiplier so that they too can be a vessel in God's hand. When Jesus uh, wants to basically take his good news out to the entire world, he starts with 12 men and specifically three. And he pours his life into them. We are talking tons of time. And we should follow that same pattern as we want to invest in others. Discipleship is something that happens over a great deal of time with other people. Is that happening in any way, shape, or form in your life where where you're spending time with other people to help them grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ? A third reminder about the vessels Jesus uses, and we'll park here for a while, Jesus calls disciples of varied character. Look at verses 16 to 19. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagernes, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It kind of looks like we just have a list there. But we do know a little bit about these guys. Here we have a list of the 12, and they are quite the crew. Again, how these men could ever accomplish anything for Jesus is frankly a little bit behind, beyond human comprehension. Why these 12? Who in his right mind would choose these 12 guys to do anything together? And the answer is Jesus. After spending an entire night in prayer, it's clear that these are the 12 that Jesus desired. If Jesus lived in our day and he had a website for his organization, uh, the leadership page would look very different than what we're accustomed to. We're accustomed to leadership pages with these bios, with uh, these really nice pictures uh, that tell us about all the the things about the wonderful people that are in leadership, their their education, their accomplishment, 
their families, whatever else. A page like that would have been really hard to put together for these 12 guys. Well, Peter, he's a fisherman, and all the rest of these guys, they're not crazy educated. They look a little rough around the edges. They are a little rough around the edges. This is quite the crew. And what we see here is that Jesus calls disciples of varied character. Literally, Jesus calls all kinds of people to be his disciples, to be with him, and then to extend his work out through them. What kinds of people are we talking about? Well, for starters, we might note here that Jesus calls unfinished characters to be his disciples. Uh, The list begins with three men who will make up Jesus' inner circle. The three men that more than anybody else are going to be close to Jesus. And he gave the three of these men nicknames. And as nicknames often do, they tell a story. What does Jesus nickname these guys and what's the significance of what he calls them? Well, we could start, first of all, with the rock. Peter. Peter means rock. His nickname is quite positive and it, it, it implies strength and stability. Which leaves us scratching our head a little bit. Because Peter was not a rock. The nickname makes makes sense if you mean that when he steps out onto the water, he sinks to the bottom like a rock. Oh, I get it now. (laughs) Ah, yes. Peter was not a rock. Peter was not strong and stable. Remember, he steps out on the water, he sinks, his faith wavers. Three times uh, he denies Jesus. One time in front of a servant girl. This guy is, is not what his nickname implies. Jesus gave Peter a nickname not describing who he was, but who he would become and how God would use him. After being with Jesus, Peter would become and be used as a foundation stone in the building of the church. A man of weak character would be transformed into a rock-like character, but that is not, I mean, it is very clearly not the Peter that we see in the Gospels. And if Jesus gave Peter a nickname describing a strength that, that Jesus would develop in him, he gave the next two a nickname describing a weakness that he would refine into something useful. Next, we have the, the sons of thunder, a.k.a. James and John. In other words, the nickname says the loud ones. The hot-tempered pair given to fiery outbursts. Their character... It's a little bit harsh. Why the nickname? Well, I I think a couple examples should suffice. suffice. Starting in Mark 9.38, it says this, John said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus is like, whoa, guys, you don't understand what's going on here. These people are not against us. And one of the most drastic examples, on one occasion, a Samaritan village rejected Jesus. And in Luke 9, 54, it says this, And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let's burn them to a crisp. Enough. James and John. Sons of thunder. It's not a particularly flattering nickname. It reminds me a bit of of the nickname my high school soccer team gave me. The opposing team had kicked the ball up the field. It was in the air, and I went running after it. 
And one of their defenders did the same, and uh, I was running forward, and all of a sudden he turned around, and boom, we hit. And down to the ground he went. The referee runs over in his uh, black shorts and yellow shirt, and just comes flying over and reaches into his pocket and whips out a red card and raises it into the air. If you don't know much about soccer, you get a red card, like you're, you're out of the game, and you're also out of the next one. It was a total accident on my part, but it was not a pretty picture. And from that point on, amongst my teammates, I became known as Big Red. (laughs) Not a super flattering nickname. But the truth of the matter is, I came by it honestly. I mean, that happened. I got a red card. And that's James and John here, the sons of thunder, and they've come by it honestly. I mean, it's not just some goofy nickname. It's actually telling us something about who these guys are. So what's the significance of these nicknames? Well, they serve to remind us that Jesus calls very unfinished characters to be his disciples. He uses such people, and Jesus changes people as they follow him. These men were not the same after being with Jesus. They they just were not the same. And you won't be either. Three years walking around with Jesus and listening to him and watching him and, and, and all of the rest. These guys are not the same men that they were. A quick look at these men also shows that sometimes Jesus calls strong characters to be his disciples. You just, just think about those first three for a moment. While there's nothing particular great about these three men, they do seem to have some great personalities, just given what their nicknames imply. I think people like that tend to have a polarizing effect. Uh, they really do. Sometimes You just put these three guys amongst the twelve Do you think they ever had a polarizing effect with the rest of the crew? You tend to love them, people like this, or they absolutely drive you crazy. Peter's the greatest. I can't stand Peter. We see people like that among the crew that Jesus uses. And I think it's a helpful reminder for us that some of the people amongst the 12 that that Jesus calls here are people with some very, very strong personalities. We see as well that Jesus calls ordinary characters to be his disciples. These 12 men are ordinary. They're insignificant. And I don't mean that like their life doesn't have value. They're just, they're ordinary, everyday people. With very little to commend them in any way, shape, or form. They were all Galilean common folk, we might say, except for uh, Judas. It looks like maybe he's a Judean. But still, all 12 of them are everyday guys. Several of them were fishermen. None of them were particularly educated. These are the men that verse 13 says that Jesus desired to be with him, to be his disciples. He's the one that picked these guys. Which of us would have put the 12 of these guys together? When Jesus shopped for his disciples, he shopped at no frills, if you know what I mean. I mean, let's just, these guys will work fine. They're great. The no-name brand. Yeah, perfect. There's nothing spectacular about these men. 
Uh, I've had the chance of standing in some beautiful old cathedrals. A few years back, I was standing uh, in, in kind of a city square area in Krakow, Poland, and there was this massive old cathedral. Um, and as is often the case in old cathedrals like that, whether it be Catholic churches or elsewhere, uh, you often see, you, you look at the stained glass along either side of the cathedral, and, and often the stained glass depicts these 12 men, the disciples. And they're elevated up there, almost right there with Jesus. And in this case, they were all given their own stained glass window. And often they are revered. And yet, you look at Scripture, and they're just very, very normal people. Jesus called ordinary characters to be his disciples. And to add another layer to that, uh, and, and highlight something slightly different than the ordinary idea, Jesus calls unknown characters to be his disciples. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Uh, We've looked at Peter, James, and John, and now it's the rest of the list in verse 18. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanian, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Who are these guys? Well, let me ask you this. What do you know about those guys? Do you realize how little the Bible tells us about these men? You may know a little bit. We may know a little bit from church history. Honestly, it's almost like we know more from church history about these guys than we know from the Bible. For some of these guys, we know almost nothing. They're just names on a page to us. Yeah, you know, the 12 12 disciples, the apostles. But God used them in great ways. We sometimes tend to think that it's the well-known who are really getting the work of Christ done. And a list like this reminds us that that's simply not the case. Yes, God uses well-known people, sure. But God uses all kinds of people, and most of them are unknown. One person said of these men, their names, however, like the even longer list of names in Romans 16, 1-16, stand as silent witnesses to the truth, That the existence of the church is indebted to the labors of those who for the most part remain unknown and unnamed. You don't need to be uh, known and important for God to be using you in eternal, wonderful ways. We are fools if we think that small, hidden, obscure, and unremembered ministry is not true in lasting ministry. Jesus calls unknown characters to be his disciples. It's not about if you're known, and it's not about if people are noticing what's going on and what you're doing. As well, we see that Jesus calls opposing characters to be his disciples. Jesus and the gospel uh, bring people together who, who wouldn't naturally come together or belong together, and who wouldn't, would probably in a million years never choose each other. Jesus calls opposing characters and he somehow makes them complementary in the advancement of his mission. For, for example, in verse 18, we see mentioned a man by the name of Matthew. He's elsewhere known as Levi. He's actually the tax collector that we met back in chapter 2, verses 13 and following. And, and what we know about this guy and his occupation as a tax collector is that he would have been tied at the hip to the Roman government. I mean, all this tax collecting stuff was going on right underneath uh, the Roman government and its authority. 
tied at the hip to the Roman government. And in that very same verse that Matthew has mentioned, verse 18, we also uh, have mention of a guy by the name of Simon the Canaanian. He's otherwise known as Simon the Zealot. Zealots were fervent nationalists who hated Rome. Just hated it. And often uh, even carried around knives. To, if they ran into a, a, a Roman authority or official of some kind, they would try to murder them. Okay. Levi the tax collector tied at the hip to the Roman government and Simon the zealot, who was probably spitting bullets at that same government. A zealot and a tax collector. Only the gospel could bring men like that together and change them and use them. And finally, Jesus calls disappointing characters to be his disciples. Look at verse 19. Last on the list, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Why him? Did Jesus make a mistake back in verse 13? I mean, he spent the whole night in prayer, and then he chose the 12 that he desired. Why him? Did he make a mistake? I don't think so. Well, okay, well, did Judas worm his way into the midst of the 12? Unnoticed? Well, that's, that's just not how the Bible describes it. And think about this. Why does Mark include him on the list? You know, when someone really ticks you off or hurts you or stabs you in the back, you, there's a temptation. You know what? Let's just strike him from the record. Like pretend like literally he never existed. Why not just strike Judas from the record? He was replaced anyway by Matthias in the book of Acts. Why is he here? Well, his inclusion in the list not only demonstrates historical accuracy in the Gospels and the Word of God, but it also instructs us. I like what one person had to say. Even the Christian fellowship, recruited and trained by Jesus, is not an untarnished and utopian society. Judas stands as a reminder that the followers of Jesus are not perfect. Nor do they have to be to accomplish the purposes for which he calls them. Rather, Jesus accomplishes his purposes in spite of their failure, perhaps even through it. It will, in fact, be on the night in which Jesus was betrayed that Jesus will inaugurate the new covenant. Here is Judas. God's even using him. You know, from time to time, people are going to really disappoint you in church life and ministry like really disappoint you, hurt you, say things about you, abandon you, walk away from you, cause all kinds of grief and havoc. People you trusted. Uh, We know from the Gospels that Judas was actually, he was basically the treasurer. He was given the money bag. There There was trust there. You might get, a, get hurt in ministry, and yet we see the work of Jesus carrying on. It's so much bigger than that. And God in his wisdom is using all these different things. And our responsibility is keep, to keep following the one who called us near to himself and who sends us out on mission. Knowing how to pick out the very, very, very best gifts for my wife uh, that really touch her heart, I decided one day that she needed 
her very own screwdriver set. I know, touching. I was walking around Canadian Tire. What I thought would be nice would be an inside set for the house in case my wife needed something. So I was walking through Canadian Tire and there it was on sale. Don't buy anything at Canadian Tire unless it's on sale. That's for starters. But there it was, this this multi-pack bag of screwdrivers. A cheap bag of assorted Canadian Tire screwdrivers. Well, my wife was really quite touched when I gave it to her. But that cheap set of screwdrivers, I'm telling you, cheap. An assorted bag of all different types of screwdrivers and heads and sizes, that sort of thing. But that cheap set of screwdrivers has been used for an endless number of tasks around our house. And to be honest, it it may even get used more than my... I have a few other sets of screwdrivers that tend to live out in the garage. And it's cold. I got to walk out there to go get them. But this cheap set, it's in the house. And it has been, that set has been used for an endless number of tasks. There's nothing special about those screwdrivers by any means. There's a whole bag of them in all different shapes and sizes. But you know what? They've gotten the job done again and again and again and again. The vessels that God uses are often just like that. God's tool bag is full of variety and it, truthfully doesn't consist of a bunch of high-end instruments most of the time, and yet that is precisely what Jesus Christ chooses to use in his work. Jesus calls disciples of varied character. Are you thinking about the people uh, that God has called you to minister with the right way? Here we sit in our little church, Beaumont Baptist Church, and all the people that sit around you that God has called you to, to spend time with Jesus with and then to go serve Jesus with. Are you thinking about these people right here the right way? Even though they truthfully may be very different from you. Uh, we have in our midst as you look around. Well, well, think about this idea. You ever just wish that people were just more like you? <laughs> you know, like, they could just be more people like me then church would function so well. There'd never be any problem. You know, like we tend to think that way. But what if it was? That would not be good, no matter how wonderful you are. You're you're wonderful. That's what I'm telling you. Uh, But imagine if our whole church consisted of people just like you or just like me. God in his wisdom chooses the people that he desires to bring near and to send out our mission and to bring those people together. And right here in our midst, uh, you look at yourself, you look at the people sitting all around you. We're people who are unfinished in our character. We're not yet who Jesus wants us to be. Uh, you look around and, and, and you may notice some very, very strong personalities in our midst. And, and, and maybe that polarizing effect takes place. Oh, I love that person. That person drives me crazy. Uh, you look around and, and you see uh, people uh, who, who maybe seem like they're a bit unknown. They're just sort of there behind the scenes and nothing flashy about their ministry. Most of us are just ordinary and everyday people. And sometimes we're very, very different. We would naturally just crash and collide and butt heads. And some people even will come who maybe end up being really disappointing 
Maybe they stick around, maybe they leave, maybe they stay, maybe they go. And yet, God in his glorious work takes people of all kinds, mostly just ordinary, everyday people, and he uses them for his glory. And that should very much impact how we think about ourselves and how we think about other people. Because all of this is meant to bring glory, not to us, but to Jesus Christ. Jesus wisely calls disciples, wisely calls and chooses them to multiply his work. And we see his wisdom in this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Actually, why don't you turn there as we wrap up this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. This uh, little paragraph of scripture describes the type of people that God tends to call to salvation. That he calls to salvation. And then who he consequently those very same people consequently end up being the vessels that he chooses to extend his work through. If these are the people that he calls to salvation, these are the people that he's going to bring near and send out. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. Paul writes, For consider your calling. It's talking about your calling to salvation. Uh, For many of you, you can think back to the time where that happened in your life, where God and his glory and through his spirit's power summoned you to life. And Paul writes this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, God chose to call people of this nature. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here's the grand purpose in it all, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You may wonder what's going on in those verses. Those verses are describing the kinds of people that God tends to call to salvation. And in essence, God chooses nobodies. What God does and the way that he works, as bizarre as it might seem at times, brings all the glory to him alone. Not man the nobodies, the the everyday ordinary people that God in his wisdom desires to choose and and, and bring near and send out. The nobodies highlight God's greatness, not ours, in a way that is absolutely unmistakable. And we should praise him for it. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Why don't you take a few minutes here to just bow your head and close your eyes and uh, I want to encourage you to just pray to the Lord and maybe you want to spend your time praising him for his wisdom and wisely calling disciples to multiply his work. Maybe you want to ask for his grace, for his help. Maybe you want to ask for forgiveness. God, my perspective on this has been all wrong and it's impacted the way that I've treated and related to other people. God, would you forgive me? God, would you help me to see things as you see them? And God, I want to be used by you. You just, however God may be leading you, uh, you pray to him here over the next few minutes.